that. Uh, the matter of canonization. In other words, how do we know what books belong in our Bible and how can we have confidence that the ones we have are the ones that belong there, that they're the ones that God has given to His church. Now, I did not print out the uh, slides for the screen. I Forgive me, I realized that this morning that I didn't print those out. I had, in my mind, printed these out and was finished. And so, uh, But a lot of the information is... Or some of it is contained here. I'd be happy to print these out later if you want uh, me to do so. Now, last time that we met, we talked about the doctrine of inspiration. And that we noted that the doctrine of inspiration, what does that refer to? Oh, sorry. What does that refer to? Are we referring to when we say scripture is inspired? Or when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, are we referring to the writers or the documents? Primarily, primarily, are we referring in the doctrine of inspiration, are we referring to the writers or the documents? Do what? Right, the writers were used in the process of inspiration, but when we talk about the doctrine of inspiration, we're referring primarily to the written word, to the scriptures themselves. Writers were used in the process, not everything they wrote was inspired, but when God was writing down for us through the human instrument, that document that would be preserved as his eternal word, authoritative and sufficient, it is the document um, that we're referring to. So the doctrine of inspiration. So we, this is somewhat of review, we covered that uh, last time, uh, but we're referring primarily to the written document, the process includes human authors, um, but we're referring to the inspired document, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Genesis, Exodus, the Psalms, and so on and so forth. When we speak of inspiration, we are uh, emphasizing that the source of Scripture is God, that He is the source, and again, that the agency or means that He uses is man. With the result that the original documents by the authors are God-breathed, that is, they are the very words of God to men. Now, we're not going to talk about inspiration this morning. Uh, We we did finish it up quicker than I wanted to, but are there any questions lingering that anybody might have that you remember um, about the doctrine of inspiration before we move on? They are, of course, uh, bring them up. Don't don't hesitate to uh, mention them. Now, as I mentioned, this morning we're going to talk about the issue of canonization, which is a handmaid to the doctrine of inspiration. Canonization, the topic, answers these questions. How is a document recognized as being inspired? And how can we know that the books we have in our Bible are, in fact, the God-breathed revelation we claim them to be? And all of that falls under the, the rubric or the discussion of canonization. Of canonization. Now, let's begin then by just discussing the meaning of canon. What do we mean when we say that word? And I'll note, we're not going to finish everything this morning. We'll finish, we'll get as far as we can this morning and then possibly, well, we'll definitely have to finish it next week. And we will save till next week issues such as the Apocrypha. What are they? Where did it come from? How was that understood in relation to Scripture? Uh, and we'll emphasize more next week uh, New Testament scripture, New Testament documents. How were those recognized? So we're going to deal with that more next week. This morning we're going to talk about some preliminary issues dealing with the canon and talk specifically about the canon in the Old Testament. Uh, and again, these are all broad overviews. There's a lot more that could be said, but these are the main points uh, that we need to understand. So, we would begin with the question then, what is the canon? What is the canon? Well, the term itself is used in a few different ways in Scripture. Uh, You might see that on your screen. Uh, The first way is to refer to boundaries uh, geographically. And and that's really the idea, is that it's a a rule, it's a measure. I'm sorry. sorry, Here you go. That sets uh, boundaries, that establishes a standard. Uh, The first 
use of the word is in 2 Corinthians 10. We'll just, we'll just glance at it. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 13 through 16. Uh, Paul says there, We will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God has appointed to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. And he's, he's talking about he's not extending uh, his uh, boundaries more than what uh, has been allotted to him by God. But he stays within the measure of influence and ministry that God has appointed him. And the word he uses there for that is canon, is uh, the term canon. It's used again uh, in Galatians 6.16. Actually, you can, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this part. You can look those up. Uh, in relation to specific moral standards. In relation to specific moral standards. And the idea there is simply this, that the term has as a basic Meaning, limits, standard, boundaries. Uh, that's, the, that's the most basic idea of it. Now, in relation to Scripture, it means this. And I can print these out for you next time. Uh, but it means this. this is a, it's up on the screen. It is the criteria by which a book is recognized as inspired. So the, the term as we use it in reference to Scripture... Um, is to say that it is a book in the canon is a book that is recognized as being inspired uh, by God given to the church by divine inspiration and with that secondly uh, it refers to an authoritative list so it's the criteria by which a book is understood as being given by God and it is the authoritative list an authoritative list this term was first used in that second aspect of an authoritative list in 350 A.D. 350 A.D. by someone named Athanasius. Who's heard of the name Athanasius? Okay, right? Athanasius was significant in defending uh, the deity of Christ and significant then in defending the Trinity. And... Uh, he referred to the Shepherd of Hermes, uh, a book in the early church that had great uh, respect, but was not recognized as being inspired. Uh, and he refers to the book as being non-canonical, non-canonical. So clearly then, if he's using that in argument, the, the concept and even the term related to that concept was already there in some measure, but it was not in popular use. It wasn't uh, we don't have record of that before uh, Athanasius in 350 A.D. as far as the term. Now, just as a, a follow-up to that, our English term Bible developed from the Greek term boulos or biblos, which referred to a piece of papyrus once it had been written on. If it was a shorter writing, it was called a biblon, and if it was a collection of these writers, it was called, and this is with the article, Ta Biblia, the Bible. A form of this word was translated into Latin as Biblia, from which we receive our, our English term Bible. So when we say Bible, essentially that word comes down to us as uh, referring to the collection of everything that was written or understood as being given by God by virtue of inspiration. So when we open our Bible, what do we have? We have all of the documents given by God to his people, collected, all together, bound, put into a leather binder, and that's what we have. Now, just as a little footnote to that, uh, that is something that we sometimes lose sight of in the glory of the scriptures. And I'll mention this uh, later. I don't, I don't know if I had it in the sermon or this. I don't remember, but... Uh, I'll mention it here anyway, is, you know, when we look at the Bible, one of the glorious truths of the Bible is the unity of the Bible and the cohesiveness of the Bible. There is no book or collection of writings like we have in Scripture. When Scripture speaks, it speaks as a unified whole. And we can forget sometimes the, the wonder of the fact that we're reading documents from as much as 4,500 years ago to as near as 2,000 years ago. And yet we flip around and cross-reference and understand and mark in our Bible as if we're reading one book, because in fact, we are. That's the doctrine of inspiration. It was breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. But th that is an, an, an 
an amazing reality, absolutely a spellbinding truth um, that we have here, the word of God that was given, beginning, written down anyway, with Moses on the plains of Moab, all the way through John, who wrote the last document in 100, around just before 100 AD. But that's what we have here. Now, again, so the canon then is saying that these, of all the things that were ever written, everything that ever claimed to be by God, everything that was ever useful to the people of God in some way, shape, or fashion, uh, it's saying that everything uh, that has been produced by man, of all of that anyway, uh, these books have been specially marked out and these only as being given to us by God as authoritative uh, completely and sufficient. So that is just a wonderful, wonderful truth. Uh, sorry, slide, I forgot to delete. Now, with that being said, I wasn't... Uh, there, there is something else that we need to discuss in relation to the canon. And, and it's this first. And I was going to put this first, but I thought maybe it would be helpful to define it before we got here. But this does need to be up front. Because this is crucial to our understanding uh, of the Bible. And uh, things that we'll discuss here in just a moment. And first of all, it's this. That the canon is spiritually appraised. The canon is spiritually appraised. And this is, again, significant. Uh, when we say that, we are saying then, or what I'm saying is that it's spiritual in nature. Now, by saying it's spiritual in nature, I'm not saying that it is subjective. For inspiration is a reality, an objective truth. It is an objective truth. The truthfulness and authority of Scripture is absolutely objective. It's rooted in the very reality and the nature of God. His word is forever established in heaven. The glory of man is like the grass of the field and the flower of the field that withers and passes away, but the word of God abides forever. So by saying it's spiritual in nature, it's not to say it's subjective. It's not to give it some kind of existential definition like, well, it becomes the word of God when it relates to me and I connect with it. That's existentialism. Like it's not this objective historical fact that where the authority resides is what God has given in actual words written on paper, but existentialism says it becomes the word of God as I have a spiritual experience with it where it's affirmed and confirmed in my heart. That's not what I'm saying when I say that it is spiritual in nature. What I mean to say is this, that it is given by the spirit of God and that it is received in truth and producing its work in the hearts of sinners creating faith and sustaining the faith of God's people only in those who have the Spirit of God recognize it and experience its power in that way. That's what I mean when I say that it's spiritual in nature. It's spiritual in nature. So while the evidence of the supernatural nature of Scripture is abundant, prophecy, fulfilled prophecy, uh, the unity, I mentioned that earlier, and cohesiveness through a span of 40 authors over nearly 1,500 years, the uniqueness of its message of stands against anything that has ever been produced by men in the history of the world, in the history of man's religion. The power, its power to transform lives. You know, you think that the, the Roman Empire was not overthrown by the sword, but by a message. By a message. That's because it came with the power of God, the Spirit of God. Uh, its coherence with reality. Uh, if you were to read Eastern religions or other spiritual, it's like it has no basis in reality. It's, uh, it's these fantasy, it's mythical. When we read scripture, we're dealing with an historical people and a real nation and real promises on a real time in real earth and real history. God has acted in time and what he says and what his word communicates coheres with reality. Um, and it's indestructibleness and other things we could mention. But even though all of those things are arguments for the supernatural nature of Scripture and other things, it's only going to be received as the Word of God with authority and submission in the heart and delight by those who have been regenerated. That's the point here that I want to make. And I think that's important to understand. And I think that could be comparable to this, just in principle. And I'll just mention this. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12... And what we're drawing on here is a principle. When he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, 
that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Spirit of God. What does he mean there? What do you think? What does he mean? What is he saying there? Right, is he saying that nobody can utter that word, Lord? People utter the word, Lord, all many will say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. That's not as is. Nobody can say that Jesus is Lord with a heart of submission and trust in him as Lord. That can bear the fruit of union with him, except by the Spirit of God. It's not the word that he's talking about. It is to say a life that demonstrates the reality of understanding that by faith and yielding to him. And experiencing him. I think it's a very similar way that that parallels with what we're saying about the canon. Uh, somebody could even recognize that uh, in a way the Bible is the authority and, and that other things aren't, but it's not going to have, it's not going to connect with them in spiritual power, uh, transforming their lives, strengthening them, undergirding them, directing them, guiding them in everything except by the Spirit of God. Now, I don't want to, I have a lot more to say on that. I don't want to uh, belabor that. But, let, but I will just say one, one thing as an illustration. And, we're, and we won't turn there, so uh, forgive me if I'm, if I'm going too quickly here. But in Acts chapter 8 and 9, it's a fascinating chapter to me. That just absolutely fascinates me, uh, particularly in this area. In Acts chapter 8, beginning in Acts chapter 8, you have the Jewish persecution that's going out against the church now. Uh, that's the first real wave of persecution came from the Jews as the gospel went out. Who led that persecution? So Stephen was stoned at the end of Acts chapter 7. Who did people lay their garments at the feet of? You can say Saul, right? And then after that, so that happened, persecution begins. So you have in chapter 9, Saul is breathing out these threats uh, against the church. He's going off and he's dragging these people, uh, these that are professing the name of Christ. He's dragging them to prison. Some are being killed. They're being separated from their families. These terrible, terrible things uh, that are happening under the leadership largely and influence of whom we know as the Apostle Paul. Now, now here's what I would just point out in terms of our subject here. What did Paul base in his mind, so if you speak to him, Paul, that we're, uh, that's being spoken of at the beginning of chapter 9, what did he base his arguments and his persecution of the Christians on, in part? Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Here's this man claiming to be God, and he's not, and he would have had the Jewish scriptures and oral tradition. Uh, to go with that to justify his persecution of the church. Now, if we go a little bit past uh, into chapter 9, he, the Lord appears to him on the road to Damascus. He gets saved. Uh, the scales later fall from his eyes. And then he goes out and about into the synagogues. And his most amazing statement is said in Acts chapter 9. He says this, and I'll just read this one uh, statement to you. And he says, um, he was arguing with them from the scriptures. He was arguing with them from, the, okay, verse 22. But Saul kept increasing in strength, and listen, confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. How was he proving to Jews that this Jesus is the Christ? What was he using? Jewish scriptures. Do you see what? That's my point I'm making. Is that we can have the canon, and Paul would have acknowledged those scriptures as being from God, but it's not until they come with the power of God uh, that they can truly be recognized and yielded to as the word of God. So what that means then is this, uh, in, in, again, in relation to the canon. There's no neutral starting point with unbelievers when we talk about what the Word of God is. Nobody's neutral on that issue, okay? Um, then we can, uh, when we start with unbelievers, we should build an argument, uh, when we build an argument to convince of the truthfulness of scriptures, we have to understand that they're going to have an inability to rightly evaluate and perceive those arguments based on spiritual rebellion 
And we must be careful that when we talk about Scripture as the Word of God, that we assert the truthfulness and authority of God's Word and then defend that assertion through those things that uh, are, we could label as proofs of its supernatural origin. But we don't begin by trying to just reason with somebody, I would say, and convince them uh, by submitting facts to their reason and then convincing them and then trying to persuade them uh, to make a, uh, to confirm the reality of these books as being given by God. Does that make sense? Do you see the difference there? Does that make sense what I'm saying? So in other words, we don't want to submit uh, the reality of this book as being from God to the reason of men. We, we assert, no, this is the truthfulness of Scripture. This is God's Word. Now, here's why all of your arguments against it fail, and that's where we would then say, here's evidences and proofs that you have to answer. But we want to be very careful to trying to just deal with somebody on a, on a completely intellectual level. Uh, so a spiritual dead person will not concede the canon. Uh, recognition of the canon, these are all up on the screen, is a fruit of regeneration. John 10.3, my sheep will hear my voice. If you're not of my sheep, then you will not hear my voice. The existence and authority of the canon is not dependent on man's recognition. In other words, those inspired books of God are inspired whether man recognizes it or not. And these are the books that belong in the canon, whether somebody recognizes it or not. Romans 3, 4 says, May it never, uh, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That is to say, if the whole world were to deny the truthfulness of Scripture as God's word, that they would only be found to be a liar, and God would be found to be true. Now, this is going to lead to one more point here, that the canon is based on inspiration, not ecclesiastical affirmation or confirmation. Now there's two basic views then in how we understand how we got the canon. Uh, one is the Roman Catholic Church view, which is that it is an authoritative collection of writings. That it is an authoritative collection of writings. Now by saying this, what they're declaring well, let me just ask you, look at that statement. Where does the authority reside in that statement? To say it's an authoritative collection of writings, where does the authority reside? Huh? The church, right? So, in a Roman Catholic understanding, Scripture derives its authority through the church. The church is what decides that. The church is the one that ultimately gives it an authoritative stamp that validates uh, the word of God. In other words, the scriptures exist because of the church, and the inherent authority of the church is the foundation of scripture's authority. Uh, that was significant in the Reformation, in recovering the authority, the sole authority of the word of God saying that the church doesn't sit in judgment of Scripture. Scripture sits in judgment of the church and of all men. That was a key part of sola scriptura. Now, the reason that uh, the Catholic Bible includes these other books is for that very reason. It fits, and this is, it fits dogma or things that they were teaching uh, that did not comport with the rest of Scripture, and so they added... Uh, the books of the Apocrypha. They confirmed them. That's, that's a motivation behind the confirmation uh, of them. Now there's a second view of how we understand Scripture. It's this. It, we call that, I would call it the Protestant Evangelical and Biblical view. And it's a collection of authoritative writings. Uh, where does authority reside in that statement? You can say it out loud. The... The writings, right? The scriptures themselves. So we either say that scriptures have authority because of the church, or we say that scriptures have authority because they are from God, and we yield and submit to them. Uh, the authority based on this second one is the authority is based on the fact of inspiration. Scripture has an inherent authority. 
Uh, it doesn't matter if, if every professing believer t- tomorrow said, well, we just reject the Bible. It doesn't change anything about their authority. It's zero. All it does is it means that's more, many more people that would fall under its condemnation. The word that I spoke to you is what will judge you on the last day, Jesus said to the Pharisees. Uh, so that, that's the crucial, the crucial thing to understand, is that the authority resides in the scriptures themselves, not in the church. The church does not give authority to the scriptures, but the scriptures, as it were, gives authority to the church in as much as she speaks faithfully to the scriptures and explains them and lives in submission to them. Only to that degree does the church have authority. Um, scripture was recognized by God's people, not determined by God's people. So that maybe you've been in these discussions, um, you know, that the councils determined kind of what the church was going to believe and what books were going to be in the Bible, those kind of things, those early church councils. Well, we'll we're going to uh, uh, show the foolishness of that as we go through this, but... But that is a a common argument, uh, that the church then determined that, hey, we want this book, and we want this book, and we want this, and we want this. And the reality is is that the scriptures were recognized uh, and yielded to, uh, as God's word, the scriptures that we have uh, by the church before any of the councils. The councils were affirming what was already believed. This was meaning against error that had crept in. The reason that it was recognized as error is because it's not what the church believed or what the scriptures taught. That's a, that's a basic um, understanding that sometimes is forgotten. Uh, let me give you one, uh, one uh, quote here. Two quotes, actually. This one at the bottom is that uh, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, similarly he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Okay? That's a great way to put it. That's J.I. Packer. Uh, Isaac Newton did not give us gravity, right? Gravity was there. It was uh, recognized. Uh, Here's another helpful quote, I think. The canon was not so much a prescribed list of inspired Jewish and Christian books as it was a number of books given by divine inspiration to both Jews and Christians. Because the writings of the apostles and prophets were canonical by virtue of their intrinsic quality, the canon principle existed from the time these books were written, and it was added to with successive appearances of new inspired works. It happened that the church was a long time in expressing its unanimous acknowledgement of certain of the writings, but when it finally came to it all, all it did was bow in recognition of that which already existed. Does that make sense? I quote, I think that's in your handout, uh, that quote is in there. I think that, in other words, all the church does is bow, and and what we do as men is bow in recognition to the authority of Scripture and its divine nature. That's that's what we do. We don't create the canon. Um, Canon exists because of the reality of inspiration. Okay, well, let's look at this a little bit. Does anybody have anything to say on that? Anything that's confusing or um, controversial or anything else? I can formulate it. I don't. Otherwise, I'll just keep uh, going. All right. Well, stop me at any time. I don't want to. I don't want to keep going if there's there is actually a question or a comment uh, to be asked. You know that, that is important when discussing one of the you know two two pillars. Uh, one of the pillars uh, of two, I think, main areas when in that understanding Roman Catholicism, and as we discuss it, is two, the authority. Authority. Uh, you know, there's a lot of particulars that flow out of the church's councils and all of these, uh, these traditions and teachings that have been added through the history of the Catholic Church, but they flow out of one primary source, one stream, that the church sees that... The sole authority is not in Scripture alone, but also in the church. That's why the councils have as much authority as the Scriptures. They give lip service to the originality and the primacy of Scripture. But in reality, the councils uh, have an equal authority in defining doctrine. You don't get the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary from Scripture. You don't get baptism for the dead, praying for the dead from Scripture. You don't get many of these other things from Scripture. 
You don't get them from that. That's why when Luther stood uh, before all of the powers, as it were, of the Catholic Church, both secular and religious, and also the powers of the state, and they wanted him to recant, he said, unless you convince me, do you all remember this? Unless you can convince me from Scripture and sound reason, I will not and I cannot recant because I'd be going against conscience, and that is neither right nor safe to do. I'm paraphrasing that somewhat. Somewhat, And then he, and he adds that because the councils of men are always contradicting one another. They're always contradicting. You want to uh, put the councils of the, the church, the Catholic church, on par with Scripture? They're always contradicting one another. He says, no, I will stand on Scripture and Scripture alone. And unless you can convince me of something by clear explanation from Scripture, I will not recant, I will not move, I will not budge on the gospel that I'm proclaiming to you. And that statement in that position undermined then the authority of the church and scripture alone uh, was rescued as the sole authority and when people began to read the scripture what happened they realized man all this stuff isn't in there it isn't in there we've been bamboozled for all these years we've been manipulated uh, so anyway uh, the terminology of canon, as I mentioned, did not develop until after the New Testament, but the concept has been understood since the first written document. Okay? The term didn't get used until later, but the concept has been understood since the first written document. And uh, Deuteronomy uh, 4, let me just look at Deuteronomy 4, verses 4 through 6. Deuteronomy 4. Verses 4 through 6, he says this, Moses does. Uh, but you held fast to the Lord your God, but you who, have, you, who, you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and an understanding people. In other words, what had given to, was given to him by God were commandments, were statutes, were wisdom, were written documents. What uh, was, we have now is the law of God, the Torah, the books of Moses that were to be the authority, even the wisdom of the nation, and what revealed God in a way that was to give them understanding and mark them out as a people who served the true and the living God. So Israel was commanded to obey them. Now, I'm just going to mention some of these verses. Deuteronomy 31.9 says this, So Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. He says later in verses 24 through 26 of Deuteronomy, It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it re may remain there as a witness against you. Now, in the immediate, con the immediate context is the book of De Deuteronomy. However, when compared with such passages as Exodus 7.14 or 17.14, let me just read that to you, uh, and others... Uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses. He says, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He says similar thing in verse 24, Exodus 24, 4. He says this. He says, uh, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of this mountain and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He says the same thing in Exodus 34, 27, and so on. Moses is repeatedly commanded by God to write his words in a book. That's what I'm, the point I'm making. And this book was to go into the Ark of the Covenant. And it was to be marked as the will of God and the word of God to God's people. If they wanted to know what did God say... What am I to do to honor God? Who is this God that I serve? They were to go to the book written down 
those five books to, uh, that we know as Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now that's very important because there's an interesting transition that takes place when we leave the law of Moses and enter into the book of Joshua. Now Moses is dead. Uh, he dies at the end of Deuteronomy. The leadership of the people has been handed over to Joshua, the son of Nun. And there's a transition that's taking place now in the history of the people of God. One is where are they entering into? Where are they entering under Joshua? Canaan, right? Yeah, it's not a trick question. Uh, Canaan, they're entering into Canaan. This is the land that was promised to them by God. Moses is dead. Leadership is transferred now to Joshua. Now, there's something very unique about Moses. Moses is understood, as you know, as the great prophet in the pe- from the people of Israel. Why? Because God spoke to Moses in a unique way. One, it's because of the, the miraculous things, the, the, the sheer magnitude of the things that God did through Moses. But there was also another thing that Scripture marks out as very unique about Moses. Moses. One is, I, you will be, he told Moses, as God to Aaron. In other words, God had a unique relationship of revealing himself to Moses. Remember, God, when you go from the patriarchs into Egypt, while they're in Egypt, and then even as they're leaving Egypt, what do they not have as a nation? What do they not have in relation to our discussion? They don't have, they don't have a written scripture. They don't have that. There is no, they don't turn over to their Bible and try to, what did God say to Jacob again and what are we doing? They don't have that. There's nothing. And so then God raises up Moses not only to do these wonderful works and deliverance, but also to reveal himself in a unique way that was establishing the foundation of Israel as a nation and revealing his specific will for them, how they were to live and who their God is promises of both judgment and promises of salvation, very specific ways that are to govern their lives of how they're to regulate their relationship with their God. All of that was now written down in a book. Now, this is going to come together. So it says in Numbers 12, 6 through 8, that God spoke to Moses face to face. He spoke to Moses face to face. He didn't speak to anybody else uh, like that. And as a matter of fact, when he makes that statement, if you'll remember, it was against the grumbling of Aaron and Miriam, right? And then God says, how dare you grumble against my servant whom I speak with face to face? Now, that was very unique then with Moses. Now, now the point I'm making here is is there's something that changes when they enter into the land of Canaan. Now, look at Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1. Uh, so our subject here now is the, is the canon. Hopefully, Joshua 1.8. What does he say there? This what? What's the second word? Well, depending on what version. I hope, hopefully, it's, maybe it's the second and all. This what? You can say it out loud. This book. This, this book. He could never, at any time in the history of Israel, he could never say that. He says it now. Because now there is a new way that God is, re, uh, in, a, in, in a primary way, that God is relating to his people. And it's through a book. Five, in fact, that are bound together and considered as one, a unit, a whole. Genesis to Deuteronomy. This is magnificent. So now he's saying, Joshua, Moses is gone but you have a book. You have written down the words of God, the will of God, the commandment of God. Know this book because it shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Okay, so the point is there that God has given to his people a book. And then he reminds them again in chapter 8. He says, then afterwards he will read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that is written in the book 
of the law. All right. The point is this, that God inspired his writer Moses to write his words. Once written, the work was immediately recognized and kept to be the rule and guide of faith and practice among God's people. And they were to care for this word. They were to preserve this word. In 2 Kings chapter 22, I'll just mention this, you know it. Hundreds of years after the writing of the law by Moses, copies were still extant and guarded in the temple, presumably still with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, so is the case with the works of all the prophets throughout the Old Testament. So that was the law of Moses that was written down and kept uh, for the people of God. That was the foundation covenant document, if you will, for the nation of Israel. But then there are other things that we have there, right? We have other historical books. We have poetic books. We have other prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets. So we do have other documents that were also recognized as being inspired. Uh, and they were thus then a part of then the, uh, the, the word of the living God. Now, to show you that this was, this was the case, that there were recognized documents among the people of God, I'm just going to mention these to you. And when I print this out for you, you'll have some of them where it says under the prophets, some of these are there. Uh, in passages such as 1 Chronicles 16, quotes portions of the Psalms. Quotes portions of the Psalms. Jeremiah 26, 28 quotes from Micah 3, 12. Daniel 9, 2 refers to the books, most likely a reference to a canonical collection of inspired writings up to that point. Uh, in this same context, he refers to the prophet Jeremiah, almost a contemporary of Daniel, as having the word of the Lord. Do you remember that when Daniel said that? Does anybody not remember that? Daniel, well, let me just, Daniel 9, just to, to so you can see that. In Daniel chapter 9, he says, uh, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years. So the books, there is a definite, marked out collection of writings that Daniel is referring to here. Okay, that's very important. Remember the idea of canon? Sets boundaries, limits. Uh, was the first, uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the points of it. So he refers to the books, the books. What is contained in the books, the books? Well, what is contained in the books is, he says, which was the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to who? Jeremiah, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, what we have in our canon as being... An Old Testament inspired document was recognized by Daniel as a part of this collection that he refers to as the books. The books. The implication there, of course, is that everybody would know what books he's talking about. That it's those books, those books that Jeremiah is a part of that is referred to as the word of the Lord, the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now, he's referring there to Jeremiah 25, 11. Now, these kind of examples could go on and on. And when, you, when I have this list for you, I would encourage you just to go back and look and compare this. The prophets recognizing other prophets that are in our canonical scriptures as being words that were given to God's people by him and that were to be yielded to and submitted to as authoritative And I would note just one other footnote here, and then we're going to close with this next slide. I'll go through it quickly. We have a few minutes. Jesus never disputed with the Pharisees regarding what books were divinely inspired. They disputed about meaning. They disputed about interpretation. They disputed over aspects of the oral law. But they regularly referred back to Jesus did and then the Pharisees to the authority of who? Moses. To the authority of the law and the prophets. This morning we're going to see to the authority of the Psalms. In Psalm 110. They, they understood that. There was no debate on that issue. They understood when he said, all that is written of me in Luke 24, in law and Moses and then the law and then the prophets, they understood that. They knew exactly what was being referred to there. Um, that's that's a kind of another discussion, but I'm just going to make that point here. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, the law and the prophets, I didn't come to abolish them, but to 
fulfill them. They would have known what law and prophets he was speaking of. Um, okay. Any thoughts there? Okay, just in these last few minutes, I want to go through one more slide. Uh, and if I do it fast enough, I might even be able to get to one more. So what is the process? The canonization went through a process. How was, how was a book recognized in the Old Testament? Well, let me just give you five, five, uh, five criteria here. One is that it was written by a prophet. That it was written by a prophet. It wasn't until around 200 AD that the more rigid threefold division we know today came into being. For most of that history, the Old Testament was commonly known as the Law and the Prophets. Uh, which is the most common way that it's referred to, actually, in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in the Talmud, the books Joshua through Kings is simply referred to as early prophets, and Isaiah through the Twelve are simply referred to as the latter prophets. Now, the Talmud is a later document, but it is saying in Jewish thinking uh, that it's reflective of Jewish thinking there, of how these books were referred to. Uh, they, in other words, those books were understood all as being prophetic books written by a prophet of God, a spokesman of God. A second question, is it authoritative? Uh, did, it, did it assert authority and exercise that authority with God's people? Some would put this first. However, the preeminent feature of recognition seems to have been the issue of authorship. Some apocryphal books did claim to be by a prophet and did try to establish an authoritative tone. However, the issue of authorship could not be established and the authoritative tone did not ring with the people of God. And therefore, they were never seriously included as part of the canon nor universally accepted by the people of God. Something we'll mention Again, with the Apocrypha. In other words, even though some of these books may have claimed to be authoritative, it was never received as authoritative by the people of God. Uh, it was not recognized by them. So it did not come with God's authority. Uh, is it authentic? Does it correspond to cohere to other revelation? Isaiah 8.20 says this, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So were there... Things said in the thing that claimed to be the word of God that contradicted other parts that were recognized as God's word, beginning with the law. So was it authentic? Is it dynamic? In other words, did it come with the power of God? Did it come with the power of God? This includes, in part, uh, the prophetic fulfillment of God's word. Uh, we don't have time, but you can jot down 1 Samuel three nineteen through 20 and 1 Samuel 9, 6. Uh, in relation to that. And was it received? Was it generally accepted by God's people? Uh, this points to what is really the primary test of inspiration. Was it accompanied by the testimony of the Holy Spirit? Uh, one says this, a testimony that found a response of recognition, faith, and submission in the hearts of God's people who walked in covenant fellowship with Him. Now there are many other works that were written during the Old Testament period and recorded in Scripture that were not a part of the Jewish canon. And... Uh, so anyway, we, I can give you those verses next time. So even as there were with Paul, right? Paul wrote other books. He wrote other letters, as did other apostles. But there's only some that were included in the canon. It was the same in the Old Testament, of course. Uh, there were other works, but they were not included in the books that, uh, that uh, Daniel was referring to. Okay. So I'll mention this. We'll... I'll mention it maybe just start with this next week. But when was the Old Testament canon closed then? Liberal scholars point to the Council of Jamina or Jabna, Jabni, in 90 AD. However, this was not an authoritative body, but a group of leaders in an academic discussion. Uh, discussion was not about the definition or scope of the canon. The issue was primarily how to apply the law to post-70 AD. The discussion related around whether Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon uh, were to be included uh, in books that do not defile the hand, which is how they refer to the holy books, books that make the hands unclean, or that defile the hand. Uh, okay, let me give you one quote here, and then we'll end with this. This is by Josephus, written around 100 AD, so before the close of the first century. He says this, It is true our history has been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but has not been esteemed for of the like authority with the former by our forefathers, because there has not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. And how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them, to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. 
But it has become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be, willing to die for them. And the books he's referring to, as he says in another quote I'll bring next week, are those that end and are terminated with the book of Malachi. He recognizes, as did rabbis after that, that no, the Spirit of God had left that, uh, in the sense of giving a word to his people after the book of Malachi. So he's referring to those books that we have in, uh, and understand in our Old Testament, uh, the 39 books that we have there. So that was recognized. And so Je- Josephus is writing that at the end of the first century. Jesus is clearly uh, alluding to those books in his discussion with the leadership that they recognized. And Daniel is already referring to those books, which clearly included those books that are in canon. And we see that throughout in the other prophetic scriptures. And we see that word preserved uh, throughout uh, the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, next week we'll mention the Apocrypha and then the New Testament canon. And uh, you can look on that handout. It has some information that we'll briefly cover and then uh, that's it. Let's, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for um, keeping it for us, for our salvation and for our edification and for our knowledge of you. Our hope is certainly grounded in the firm foundation of your word and your authority. And we thank you, uh, Lord, that you have confirmed that in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you. We thank you for forgiveness of our sin. We thank you for the gift of your son. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.